Journey to Pentecost, brought to you by the Greek Orthodox Christian Society of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of Australia. Sunday of the Paralytic with Father Dimitri Kokinos, parish priest at the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese Church, Parramatta. My brothers and sisters, in this Sunday's Gospel, we learn that after Jesus healed a paralyzed man, he found him in the temple and said to him, Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. Some people, if they were to stop and think about what Jesus said to this man, may even be scandalized. They may even feel angered that Jesus could say that nothing worse befall you. You see, we are talking about a man that the Gospel tells us was paralyzed for 38 years. Not only that, but it seems he had very little support. As he said to Jesus, I have no man to put me into the pool. There was no center link in those days. If you were paralyzed, you could not work and you ended up very poor. And if you had no supports, then life would be extremely difficult. So he was paralyzed, poor, without human support. How could Jesus say that if he fell into sin, this would be worse. One can be tempted to think that what could be worse than being paraplegic, not being able to afford the comforts of life, etc. My brothers and sisters, in the spiritual journey, one can come to a level that one can come to understand these words of Jesus. Some people are healthy, have lots of money, yet they feel an emptiness in their life and they are miserable. Others have severe health issues, may even be disabled or quite sick, and yet they have an inner peace and contentment. If we have Christ in our heart, then we can be at peace and content no matter what our external circumstances. Sin is worse. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not insensitive to the fact that it would be very, very difficult to be paralyzed or have a chronic illness or disability. I do not want to downplay this. Sin, however, is even worse. And this is not only because of life after death. Of course, if we, we live a life of sin and do not repent and thus are condemned for eternity, 
What could be worse than this? Even in this life, however, sin is worse even than being paralyzed or disabled. For example, if in our heart we have hatred or anger or bitterness or are prone to judging others, then we end up miserable. We also end up hurting the people we love and end up lonely. Similarly, if we have pride, an exaggerated sense of self-importance, if we are self-indulgent, then again we can be very difficult to live with and end up lonely. If we cannot take constructive criticism because of our pride, then how can we be healed and progress? Such passions blind us. We cannot see the truth. We cannot even see our own shortcomings. It would be very hard to be paralyzed, but it is even worse to be making a mess of our lives, to be hurting others, and to be unable to see our own contribution to the problem. We simply blame others and refuse to see our own faults. All the passions lead sooner or later to misery. The love of money and greed is also horrible. If we have these passions, we will never be satisfied. Our life will be full of stress and empty. Carnal desires also dirty the soul, so we cannot see God. They lead to a slippery slope and in the end lead only to shame. My brothers and sisters, with the Lord's help and also with all our diligence and courage, we need to fight the sin and the passions that are in us. And we need to do this systematically. The greatest and most perfect thing a person may desire to attain in this life is to come near to God and dwell in union with Him. A greater accomplishment than capturing a whole city is to acquire virtue. A greater feat than defeating a powerful invading army is to defeat our own passions and sins. What follows in this podcast is advice on fighting the sin that is in us from the famous and classic spiritual book, Unseen Warfare. An important aspect of the spiritual warfare is not to trust in ourselves. We need to plant in our heart perfect trust in God and complete confidence in Him. We also need to strive to rid our heart from ignorance, firstly through prayer, by which we must implore the Holy Spirit to pour His divine light into our hearts. Secondly, we need to exercise the mind to always examine things and probe deeply in order to see clearly which of them are good and which bad. We should judge situations not as the world does, but as they are judged by right reason and the Holy Spirit. In particular, we shall then see that the honours, pleasures and riches of this world are nothing but vanity, that to forgive one's enemies and do good to them is true greatness, that a man who scorns the world 
shows greater strength and power than a man who rules over the whole world, that humble self-knowledge should be preferred to all other kinds of knowledge, that to overcome one's own evil tendencies and lusts, however insignificant, is more worthy of praise than the capture of many fortresses. Every time our free will is acted upon and pulled on the one hand by our sinful passions and on the other hand by the will of God, each of them seeking to conquer our free will, we must diligently fight. We need to be vigilant. As soon as we feel impulses of our sinful passions, we must immediately use every effort to resist them and not allow our own will to be inclined towards them, however slightly. We should hasten to kindle in ourselves a wholehearted aversion to sin, which seeks to steal and destroy our soul. At the same time, we should appeal to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Helper, asking for his assistance and protection and for the strengthening of our better will. As well, if it is feasible, we should at once do something opposed to the suggestion of the sinful impulse. I will illustrate this with an example. Suppose someone has offended or upset us in something great or small and has aroused in us a movement of displeasure and irritation accompanied by a suggestion of retaliation. We need to pay attention to ourselves and hasten to realize that these movements are bent on enticing us towards evil. We need to take up the attitude of a warrior on the defensive. We need to strive to stop these movements and not let them penetrate any deeper. We need to also rouse aversion against them as against our enemy. We need to also call to the Lord, Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Having thus regained peace, we then need to do to the person who has upset us something that will show kindness and a conciliatory disposition towards them, such as a friendly word, some timely favor, and so on. This would all mean following the advice of David, depart from evil and do good. With the carnal passions, we also need to be very careful and vigilant. Firstly, we need to pay attention to the causes that may give birth to temptation or excite passion. We need to strive so that our eyes do not look at anything pornographic. So we have to be very careful at what we watch behind screens, where we go for recreation and so on. In the wise book Ecclesiasticus, we, it says, never trust your enemy. We may be confident that we can watch a certain movie or go to a certain party and not be tempted, but we need to realize that we must not trust ourselves in this respect. If carnal thoughts or desires come into our mind, we need to get rid of them quickly and turn to fervent prayer, chanting, spiritual reading, 
and even do some manual work at the time that can help distract us. Overall, in order to gain victory over sin, we must wage a ceaseless and courageous war against all the passions, especially and preeminently against self-love or a foolish attachment to ourselves manifested in self-indulgence and self-pity. We need to turn to Christ for strength and constantly remember his love for us. God bless you all. Saint Hieronymus of Simonopetra, celebrated by the Greek Orthodox Church on the 9th of May, with Greg Kustis, member of the Greek Orthodox Christian Society. Saint Hieronymus was born to a poor yet pious family, living in the Christian village of Reisdere in the Crini region of Asia Minor in 1871. Baptized John, he demonstrated from an early age a sharp intelligence and maturity beyond his years. The village church became the centre of his life. From his youth, he immersed himself in the sacraments, services and prayers of the church. Life in the village was hard, however, and this experience of poverty and hardship prepared him well for his life as a monk, where he would bear the same voluntarily and faithfully. Though living in this poverty, John was blessed with a faithful family, from the age of seven, he knew the salutations to the Theotokos by heart, his older sister having taught them to him. Before she passed away, his mother became a nun, along with his brother. A faithful meeting on the island of Chios with the famous elder St. Parthenios helped to direct the course of his life. When John and his friends approached the elder in the cave in which he lived, the saint greeted them by name, though having never met them, and spoke to them of the paths that their lives would take. To John, he happily exclaimed that he would become a monk. After his patient teenage years, John received his father's blessing to go to Mount Athos. John's first act upon arriving at the holy mountain was to make the sign of the cross and to thank the Banaya. Over the course of his life, his love for the Mother of God would only grow. To his dying day, he would weep at saying or hearing her name. On the 3rd of October, 1888, John entered the holy monastery of Simonopetra. Within the same month, on the 28th, his name was entered into the Book of Novices. John was quickly given many responsibilities, both in the administration of the Holy Mountain, as well as the care of the many dependencies that worked in tandem with the monasteries. Executing these responsibilities, with humility and obedience, he worked for four long years as a novice. In 1893, on Palm Sunday, John was tonsured a monk of the Great Schema, taking the name Hieronymus. Thereafter, holding his patron saint's feast day of June 15th in high regard. His struggles only increased from there. Continuing his constant study, an elder wrote of him, saying that he burnt more lamp fuel on reading than he drank water. 
He was quiet and vigilant. While alone, he would shed tears. He would not go near a fire to warm himself, even when it was cold. He rarely slept, and when he did, he only sat in a chair for a short while to close his eyes, ready upon opening them again to offer advice and support for even the most insignificant issue. Through his humility, he became the pride of the monastery. The new novices were sent to him for direction as they began their monastic life, and he always gave them the advice that was necessary to keep them on their angelic path. One elder recalls, He would check up on us. I would go to the stalls at the back so that he wouldn't see me because I was ashamed of myself. He would not eat anything outside of the appointed mealtime, and when he did eat, he would rarely eat his whole ration before others, always choosing to do the readings during the meal. He would then take his food away and eat in private so others might not see him. Despite having many secretarial duties, he would never miss a service and always help others in other duties, regardless of how menial or how common they were. In 1910, he was sent to Athens to serve for six months as the steward of the Dependency of the Ascension. Both abroad and at home, he worked tirelessly for the prosperity of the monastery, despite many setbacks. In 1911, when he was returning to the monastery, he survived a shipwreck that he believed he only survived due to the providence of God. When he was young, he had been cured with the aid of Saint Dimitrios, and this special connection with the saints of the church continued. He had developed a hernia, and this had caused him great discomfort, yet he did not suffer long. During the vigil for the feast of Saint John the Theologian, when he arose to chant, Lord, I have cried, he felt the pain from the hernia evaporate, and it never bothered him again. In 1914, he was voted in as the overseer of the monastery and a member of the Committee of Elders. He attended closely to the abbot Iwanikios during the abbot's illness, and on the 7th of December 1919, he was with his elder as he fell asleep in the Lord. The abbot's last wish had been that Hieronymus be named the next abbot of the monastery. On the 2nd of January 1920, he was proposed as a candidate for the office of abbot. That year, on April 11th, Metropolitan Irenaeus of Cassandria ordained him deacon and then priest on the next day, raising him to the rank of archimandrite and bestowing on him the grace of a spiritual father. On April the 18th, he was given the abbot's staff by unanimous decision. As abbot, he was industrious, resuming his constant travels to ensure the smooth workings of the monastery, in the same way he had done before his raising. During a planned visit to the dependency of the Ascension in Athens. He diverted his journey to the island of Aegina. The purpose of this trip was to visit with Saint Nectarios, with whom he had developed a spiritual connection with many years prior. Saint Hieronymus arrived at the saint's monastery on the eve of the feast of the Holy Trinity. Yet by this time, Saint Nectarios had begun to fall ill and was unable to preside for the vigil. The nuns asked him if they should ring the bells. He replied, "Ring the bells! The priest is coming." As they rang the bells. Elder Hieronymus entered the monastery. Didn't I tell you that the priest was coming? And is the abbot of a monastery on Athos? The saint said to them. After the vigil was over, the saint asked Elder Hieronymus to visit all the cells of the nuns in order to bless them, but he didn't want to obey God's bishop and slipped quietly away. When he told the story later, he wept, saying, "Who was I compared to a saint?" He always remembered the saint's request, however. And four days before he departed this life in 1957, he went and blessed the nuns' cells. Despite his many administrative duties, he continued to devote many hours to the service of the brotherhood. Morning would find him kneading bread in the bakery, 
In winter, he would help with clearing the snow from the courtyards. In the afternoons, he would be in the gardens, and at night, he would wash his clothes. His own elder had taught him to be the first among servants. The door to his abbacy was never shut, receiving visitors at any hour. Many troubles would plague the saint in the years to come, and he was unjustly treated many times. In 1924, after the calendar reform, he was shut out from the monastery's church for months by a group of monks for performing a service with the new calendar while in Athens. This issue with the calendar, as well as other issues arising from slander, caused him in 1931 to be exiled from the monastery for six months, retreating to the monastery of Kutlumusil. Eventually, the community recognised his innocence and lifted his exile after four months, but sent him instead back to the dependency of the Ascension in Athens. He did not return to the Holy Mountain ever again, living at the dependency for 26 years from the age of 60 to 86. There he transformed a little part of the city of Athens into a small holy mountain, saving countless souls through many works. During his time at the dependency, he suffered constantly with illnesses that never left him, continuous fevers, headaches, fatigue, bronchitis, and blood illnesses were among that which he suffered. It was only discovered after he reposed that his whole body had been full of cancer. No one had known as he had never talked about the pain he suffered. He felt that involuntary pain was just another part of the ascetic life. Praises did not fill him with joy, nor accusations with sorrow. At first, only the simple people that lived close to the monastery came to him for confession. But soon the benches outside his confessional would always be full, people patiently waiting for hours to be with him. He took on the pain of so many, yet as austere as he was with himself, he was ever the more lenient with those around him. Even when he was sick, he would take as much time as was required with every person who came to him, despite having so many to see. He would say, go on, let the others wait, I want to listen to you. Souls were like an open book to him. He wouldn't even ask questions of those who confessed. When asked about this, he said, I don't want to put sins on you that you didn't think of yourself. Everyone knows well what they have and what burdens them. He did not allow you to feel hopeless. He knew how to comfort souls. This is why I'm here. This is my job, he would say. At 86 years old, though racked by his illness, he received a divine vision. Travelling to Egina, he visited the monastery of St. Nectarios and venerated the saint's holy skull. Four days later, after the Divine Liturgy on Sunday the 6th of January 1957, Saint Hieronymus fell asleep in the Lord. Please, oh.